0: Look at John chapter 6, starting with verse 1. After this, Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee. Some call it Tiberias. A huge crowd followed him, attracted by the miracles they had seen him do among the sick. When he got to the other side, he climbed a hill and sat down, surrounded by his disciples. It was nearly time for the Feast of Passover, kept annually by the Jews. When Jesus looked out and saw that a large crowd had arrived, he said to Philip, where can we buy bread to feed these people? He said this to stretch Philip's faith. Philip flunked, by the way. That's not in the scripture, I'm just telling you. Philip flunked. Uh, Philip answered, 200 silver pieces wouldn't be enough to buy bread for each person to get a piece. One of the disciples, it was Andrew, brother to Simon Peter, said, there's a little boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but that's a drop in the bucket for a crowd like this. Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was a nice carpet of green grass in this place. They sat down, about 5,000 of them. Then Jesus took the bread and, having given thanks, gave it to those who were seated. He did the same with the fish. All ate as much as as they wanted. When the people had eaten their fill, he said to his disciples, gather the leftovers so nothing is wasted. They went to work and filled 12 large baskets with leftovers from the five barley loaves. The people realized that God was at work among them in what Jesus had just done. They said, this is the prophet for sure, God's prophet right here in Galilee. Jesus saw that in their enthusiasm, they were about to grab him and make him king. So he slipped off and went back up the mountain to be by himself. Now, just a little uh, uh, thing for you to uh, note. This miracle of Jesus, which we just read, uh, is the only miracle of Jesus save his resurrection that is found in all four gospel accounts. And, 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 and that should give you an indication of its significance, of its importance. There are miracles of Jesus that are told in one, two, or three of the Gospel accounts. This is the only miracle of Jesus, save his resurrection, that is told in all four Gospel accounts. That's how important it is. And yet, for all its importance and for the fact that it is told in all four gospel accounts, the people who received the miracle missed out entirely on what it was about. The miracle was not about food. The miracle was about the one who provides the food it's important for us to understand and i find myself saying this more and more here of late we confuse our blessings with our blesser and that's always a mistake we get caught up in the blessing and we know that they got caught up in the blessing because we read john 6:22 through 38 and jesus says to them and they confirm in how they respond to jesus We want more bread. We want more food. We want you to perform another meal. Show us another one. Do it one more time. Do it again. That's that's essentially their attitude. Their attitude has nothing to do with seeking a deeper spiritual significance to what is taking place. Their attitude is solely we want more. Jesus recognized after he performed this miracle that the people had no appreciation for what he did. And in fact, they were about to prevail themselves upon him and anoint him king of Israel, which indeed he is. But it was not in the proper sequence of time. It was not in the time that God had wanted this to take place. And so the scripture says Jesus slips off. And as he slips off, the disciples go across the Sea of Galilee. And while they're going across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was not in the boat. I'm not going to read all of that part, but in verses uh, 16 through uh, 21, uh, it talks about the fact that the disciples go across the Sea of Galilee. And while they're on the water, jesus comes walking to them on the water now this thing is called a sea it's really not a sea it's a lake uh, it, it, uh, it has three titles here we see two we see the sea of galilee it's also called the sea of D- tiberias it's also called lake Genezareth. all three refer to the same body of water it's not a sea it's not even a great lake. It's not like Superior or Michigan or Ontario or Huron. But you didn't know I knew the names of all the great lakes, did you? But I, I got them all. No, it's more along the lines of Lake Pontchartrain, okay? now Lake Pontchartrain is big, but it sure ain't no sea. So they go out. Jesus slips off into a mountain. But from the mountain, he can watch the boat as it's going across from one side to the other. What is he doing in the mountain? The presumption is that he is praying. He is conversing with his father. And, and, and as he finishes his prayer, he comes down off the mountain and decides to walk not around the lake, but to walk on the lake, to walk across the lake to where the boat is now. The crowd that was left behind realized that there had been only one boat, that Jesus had not gotten into it. They had seen him go off, they had seen them go off without him. By now, boats from Tiberius had pulled up near where they had eaten bread, blessed by the master. So when the crowd realized he was gone and wasn't coming back, they piled into the Tiberius boats and headed for Capernaum, looking for Jesus. If you read this from all four passages, one of the passages says that they walked around. That's to let you see what the size of it is. I imagine, Mike, you can tell me if this is true or not. I imagine you can walk around Lake Pontchartrain. It takes a little while, but I imagine you can walk around Lake Pontchartrain. Well, it, it would have taken some time for them to do it. But they came looking for Jesus. They went out of their way to look for Jesus. They caused themselves a certain degree of disruption in order to find Jesus. And somebody would say, well, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to leave everything behind to follow Jesus? Yes, we are, but here's the problem. They didn't come looking for Jesus. They came looking for food. They came looking for Jesus to perform another miracle. And Jesus is frustrated by not their coming, but the motivation behind their coming. What is the purpose of this parable? And and the parable is that he calls himself the bread of life. And he contrasts himself as the true bread of life with uh, superficial Things. There are five things that I want you to see in this encounter that Jesus has with his disciples that are beneficial to us. You ready? Here we go. Number one, Jesus seeks to clearly define his divinity and his relationship with God as his son. It is very important that the people recognize that Jesus was not just a good man, not just a prophet, not just a teacher, but that he was of God, that he was sent by God. Don't waste, verse 27, don't waste your energy striving for perishable food like that, Work for the food that sticks with you, food that nourishes your lasting life, food the Son of Man provides. He and what He does are guaranteed by God the Father to last. And you would say, well, God the Father, that's the way we always refer to God. That's not the way these people referred to God. These people would never call God Father. In fact, one of the most radical things that's found. In scriptures when the disciples asked Jesus in Luke chapter 11, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples, Jesus says, when you pray, start by saying, our Father. Now, most of the disciples sitting there would have let their eyes get big and probably would have backed up at the very thought of calling God Father. That's too intimate a term. It it, it suggests a relationship that up to this point, the disciples did not know that they could have with God. But here in this passage, Jesus does not just address God as the Father, but he also acknowledges himself as the Father's Messiah, as the Father's Christ. And that's important. Because it is in the relationship between the Father and His Messiah that our salvation hinges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If Jesus was just a good man, if Jesus was Moses. Well. Or if Jesus was Elijah. Well, let, let's go to what the disciples answered. When Jesus asked, Who do people say that I am? And, and they gave them answer, said you, you're Elijah. Or you're Jeremiah, you're one of the prophets. If Jesus was Elijah, his crucifixion would have meant absolutely nothing. Elijah did great works. Jesus did great works. But there was something more to Jesus than there was to Elijah. If Jesus was Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a man that was filled with compassion. In fact, he's known as the weeping prophet. All he does is cry all day long. Uh, 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 and and, and Jesus was a man of compassion. He comes up to a woman uh, who's burying her son in a village called Nain, and without the woman asking Jesus anything, without the woman, there's nothing in the scripture that suggests that she even knew who Jesus was. Jesus halts the funeral procession, walks up to the casket, takes money out of your pockets, and touches the body and says, get up, and gives the boy back to the mother. Jesus was filled with compassion also. But if Jesus was just compassionate and not the Son of God, we'd still be lost in our sin. The importance of who Jesus is, is the connection that he has with the Father. And so the first thing that he wants them to understand is that he's more than just a man. That he is divine. And that divinity is essential. Second thing he wants to point out is that it is frustrating to him and it should be to us that people come to God for the wrong reason. And they reject the gospel when they finally understand it. We operate under the assumption that if people understood the gospel, then they would have no problem with the gospel. I beg to differ. I've been doing this for a while now, and I've been dealing with folk for a long time. It is the fact that you understand it that makes you reject it. You ain't got no problem understanding love your enemies. You got a big problem doing it. But, 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 but you clearly understand. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say unto you, love your enemies. You, you don't have a problem understanding that. Bless those who curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that use you and persecute you. You understand the gospel. If a man strikes you on one cheek, turn to him The other also, if a man compels you to walk one mile, go with him too. If a man sues you for your coat, don't just give him the coat, but give him your cloak as well. You ain't got no problem understanding that. Your problem comes in doing it. And in fact, we reject it. We throw up roadblocks and obstacles and reasons why what Christ clearly says does not apply to us. Jesus gets frustrated when we turn to God for the wrong reason and when we reject the gospel even though we understand what it says. Right? I've already covered the understanding. You understand what it says. What do you mean when you say we come to God for the wrong reason? Well, I was talking about this a little bit at noon. Sometimes... We have been taught to come to God because we're scared that we're going to go to hell if we don't. Come to Jesus or burn. Y'all, y'all, some of y'all are old enough to remember them, those kinds of sermons. If you don't come to Jesus, you're going to burn in the fires of hell. Oh, Lord, when they get to tell the story of Lazarus and the rich man, and, and, and the rich man is down in hell. You do know that that's a parable. We're going to cover that one in the next couple of weeks too. That's not a literal description of heaven and hell. Folk in hell can't see what's going on in heaven. And folk in heaven can't see what's going on in hell. Jesus tells a story to make a point. But some of us come to God because we're scared of what will happen to us if we don't. Well, I am not here to suggest that there is no such thing as a hell. I believe truly that there is. I don't believe that hell is, is a place of fire and brimstone. I believe hell is anywhere God is not. Consequently, I ain't got to die to go to hell. Some folk living in hell every day. You're living absence, the present, not absence, absent the presence of God. Any place that God is not is hell. So I believe that there is a hell, but I don't believe that Jesus wants us to come to him because we're afraid of going to hell. There's too much good that Jesus talks about for us to come simply because we're afraid that if we don't come, we're gonna to go to hell. There is love in the presence of Jesus. There is peace that passes all understanding in the presence of Jesus. There is access to spiritual power that sustains us regardless of how negative or difficult the circumstances are that we face when we come to Jesus. With all the good that is ours When we come to Jesus Why is it that we would concentrate only On hell You don't hear me preaching too much on hell I got too much other good stuff to talk about It, 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 it was frustrating to Jesus they, they, they asked Jesus When did you get here Do You see that When they saw Jesus, they said, verse 25, when they found him back across the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus doesn't even answer that question. Jesus responds, you've come looking for me, not because you saw God in my actions, but because I fed you, filled your stomachs, and for free. I am always intrigued when Jesus answers questions that nobody asked. He recognizes that, that, that you, you're putting up a pretense. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He comes to Jesus undercover. He comes to Jesus in secret, and, and he comes talking about how wonderful Jesus No one, you must be from God, because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with you. Jesus blows all of that by. And Jesus says, let me tell you something. You better be born again. And unless you are born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus don't need you to tell him who he is. Jesus doesn't need you to prop him up. I'm sometimes amused by the way we pray. Lord, we know who you are you were the one who was with the hebrew boys in the fiery furnace and you were the one who did this and you were the one who like jesus forgot like jesus is senile like jesus doesn't know who he is just a little suggestion let's simplify our prayers and talk to god about the things that he suggests that we talk to him about he said That we should solicit his presence and his power and his provision, not just for ourselves, but for people around us. He said that we should intercede on behalf of others in their sin and in their time of need. He said that we should ask for strength to forgive as we have already been forgiven. Jesus don't need me to tell him who he is and what he's doing. That's why he, he blows by what they say. When, when did you get here? Eh, that ain't what you really want to ask. What you want to ask is, what time is feeding? What, what, what time is the, is, the, is the next meal coming? You went out of your way. You came out of your way. If I told you, I'm looking at uh, 80% empty sanctuary right now. If I told you that, if I told you on Sunday that at the end of Bible study on Wednesday night, some blessed person, we we'd never use the word lucky, some blessed person is going to receive $10 million. Do you think it'd still be empty in here? Because our primary motivation in this society is money and wealth. Y'all be whispering. Y'all wouldn't listen to nothing else I say the rest of the day. You would have been standing at the door at 3 o'clock this afternoon in 92 degree heat, waiting to get in here. They went out of their way. They got in boats and came across a lake. They left their homes for what? Free food. And Jesus says, it's a shame that you're interested in free food, but you're not interested in free salvation. And we can say today that it is a shame that people are interested in material things but not interested in spiritual things. There are things that God wants to do for us, through us, in us and with us that we don't have any access to because we have approached him the wrong way. Turn in your Bibles for just a second to James chapter 4. Where do you, starting with verse 1, where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to. Your spoiled children, each wanting your own way. Now, y'all not familiar with that from Peterson. Y'all, you all familiar with this more from the King James Version or some paraphrase of the King James Version. You have not because you ask not. And when you do ask, you still don't get it because you ask with the wrong intention. You have set your heart on something that is not of God, but is of the flesh. And as a result, God, who is not crazy, knows what it is that you're really after. And and, and he refuses to give it to you. Jesus is put off by our approaches to him for the material. Some of us don't pray to God till the end of the month. And our bills are due. It's Wednesday and the check don't come till Friday. And, and, and we've, we, we've received a notice from Intergy that says, if you don't pay the bill by tomorrow at 12 o'clock noon, We're going to turn off your power. Oh, Lord Jesus. Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't come for the things that God really wants to share with us. We come for the things that we want from God. Jesus is put off by it. We look to him to provide for those things, not as secondary desires, but as primary demands. Let me, let me turn you to one other passage, and then we're going to move on to the next point. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 19. And again, I'm reading from the message version. Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Skip over. Look at verse 27. Has anyone by fussing in front of the mirror ever gotten taller by so much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion. Do you think it makes that much difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop. But have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The 10 best dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is get you to relax To not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. Did you hear that? That's a sermon all by itself. To not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things. But you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Now, either you believe that or you don't. It's not in how you verbally respond. It's how you live, and it's in what you devote your attention to. If God blesses you with enough money to pay your rent, and you don't pay your rent, that ain't God's fault. That's your fault. If God blesses you with enough money to pay Mister Energy and miss water, and you don't pay them, that ain't God's fault, that's your fault. And, and, and I'm saying that because you, you, you're sitting there saying, well, if he gave me more money. No, if you spent the money right that he gave you. Part of our problem is that we don't spend the money right that God gave us. I was watching the news just before I came out here, and they were talking about how uh, the the three casinos in this area, are, are, well, well, two of them, the one, the two riverboats downtown. Y'all don't know nothing about that. Did, did y'all know that there were casinos in Baton Rouge? I'm sure good Sunday school going Christian folk didn't know that, but but but. So so I, I had to start with the fact that there are casinos in Baton Rouge. Casinos are places where you play games of chance. I know you don't know what a casino is, so I I have to educate you on these things. They're they're where you play games of chance, and and, and you bet certain amounts of money in the hope that you'll win more money. I was watching on the news, and they were saying that the two Riverboat casinos are both losing money uh, from what they were making Uh, The previous year and they've been losing money steadily for the last five years and that LaBerge casino a little bit further down the road now makes more money than the other two casinos combined the thing that struck me was not that two are losing money and what isn't what struck me is even losing money they're bringing in 12 and 15 million dollars a month a month They're losing money, but they're bringing in between 12. Watch the 10 o'clock news tonight. They're bringing in between 12 and 15, and they're losing money. Where's the money come from? Well, It just so happened that they interviewed Lauren Scott, who is a local economist. And he says that unlike other places, Baton Rouge's uh, casinos are uh, are patronized by local people. Folks don't come from out of town to patronize the casino here. In fact, what we do is go out of town so our neighbor doesn't know that we went to the casino. Am I on your street yet? Have I gotten to your address yet? So if it's patronized locally, that means that the money that they make comes from the people who live here in town. So it's not that you don't have any money. It's what you choose to spend your money on. And when you take your rent money and your insurance money and your light bill money and your water bill money and your child's daycare money, praise the Lord, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. And you spend it all at the casino that's losing money to the tune of 12 to $15 million a month profit. And then you come to the Lord. I ain't going to talk about the fact that you come here. You come to the Lord. Lord Jesus, if you would just send me a few more dollars, I promise you I'll never do it again. That That ain't God's problem. That's your problem. It's not that God didn't do. It's that you chose not to use what God gave you. These people had eaten the day before. They'd eaten for free the day before. And their only concern is getting close enough to Jesus so they could eat for free again. That's sad. Point number three. It is always a mistake to seek a salvation to which we can contribute or merit. It is always a mistake to think that you can do something to get your own salvation. Verse 27, don't waste your energy striving for perishable food like that. Work for the food that sticks with you, food that nourishes your lasting life, food the Son of Man provides. He and what he does are guaranteed by God the Father to last. To that they said, well, what do we do then to get in on God's good works? Jesus said, throw your lot in with the one that God has sent. That kind of commitment gets you in on God's works. They waffle. Why don't you give us a clue about who you are? Just a hint of what's going on. When we see what's up, we'll commit ourselves. In other words, they come to Jesus who essentially says, I am the source of your salvation. And they said, prove it. That's exactly what they said. Prove it. Do something. Convince us. If your salvation comes from something that you did or something to which you can contribute, you ain't got no salvation. Literally, the word salvation means deliverance. It means that you have been delivered from something bad to something good you can't contribute to your salvation paul says that we are saved by faith not of works so nobody has any reason to brag no one has any reason to boast you need to understand that whenever you seek a salvation to which you can contribute You're seeking an inferior salvation. You're seeking something that will not last. Turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. starting with verse 1 the fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God this faith is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living it's our handle on what we can't see the act of faith is what distinguished our ancestors set them apart I'm sorry set them above the crowd by faith We see the world called into existence by God's word. What we see created by what we don't see. By an act of faith, Abel brought a better sacrifice to God than Cain. It was what he believed, not what he brought. That made the difference. That's what God noticed and approved as righteousness. After all these centuries, that belief continues to catch our notice. By an act of faith, Enoch skipped death completely. They looked all over and couldn't find him because God had taken him. We know on the basis of reliable testimony that before he was taken, he pleased God. This is what I want to get to. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. And why? Because anyone who wants to approach God must believe both that he exists and that he cares enough to respond to those who seek him. The writer makes it very clear that your salvation has nothing to do with you. It comes solely from God. Jesus said, cast your lot with the one that God has sent. Who's the one that God has sent? Me. And they said, well, we want to cast our lot with you, but you got to show us something. You got to show us some more. In your Sunday school lesson Sunday, and, and, and I know you'll be in Sunday school Sunday, right? Uh, in your Sunday school lesson Sunday, God shows his frustration with his people when he brings them to the promised land, and they decide by majority vote that they don't want to go in. Moses sends 12 spies into the land, and and 10 of the 12 spies come back with a negative report. Two say, let's go in. God has given us this land. Uh, It should be ours. God will fight with us. God will fight for us. Let's go in and possess what God has given to us. The land represents salvation. let's, Let's take what God has offered to us. The other 10 go out to the crowd and tell the people, now, When Moses come and ask you what we're going to do, you tell him we ain't going in. You tell him that the the, the land is all right, but they got some mean people who live over there and they're too big for us and we ain't going to fight them. In fact, if you read the text, it says they got so mad and got so worked up that they blamed God for bringing them out of Egypt. Do you know how crazy you got to be to blame God for freeing you from slavery? They blamed God for setting them free. And they said that they were going to kill Moses and Aaron and elect somebody else who would lead them back to Egypt. And God says, I've had enough of these folks. I've shown them over and over and over and over again who I am and yet they will not believe God sends Moses to them and through ten plagues God reveals who he is and that he's greater than Pharaoh or Pharaoh's gods and all the while the people are complaining Pharaoh finally lets them go they start heading towards Canaan they get to the Red Sea And they see Pharaoh's army coming up behind and they get all distressed and they start cussing Moses and Aaron and they said it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt and God crosses them over the Red Sea. He left the opening there and Pharaoh's army starts going in and they say, see, he brought us over here, but now he's going to let them come over here too. And they're gonna kill us over here. And they watch as the sea closes up around them and Pharaoh's army is drowned. Next thing they, they, they do is they say, You know, we ain't got no water. And, and Moses brings them to a place that is called Mara. Mara means bitter. And, and they say, and You done brought us to this watering hole and the water ain't fit to drink. It's poisonous. We should have stayed in Egypt. I'm always amazed at how many people want to stay in the worst place they've never been because they're used to it. We should have have stayed in Egypt. You done brought us out here in this desert we ain't got no water and we're going to die. God takes a stick, tells Moses to put the stick in the water and, and, and the water goes from being bitter to being sweet and they're able to drink. The next thing they say is, okay, well now we got plenty of water but we ain't had nothing to eat. And God sends them quail in the morning and in the evening. And he sends manna from heaven. And and, and they gather the manna. And they eat quail and manna. They they eat a bird sandwich. (laughs) And they finally get to the promised land. And they say, we ain't going in. And God says, I've shown you over and over and over and over and over again. And yet you continue to disrespect me. You continue to doubt me. You continue to cast aspersions on my character and on those that I have set apart to lead. He actually tells Moses, I'm done with these folk. I'm going to put a plague on all of them. And I'm going to start over with you. Moses begs off and, 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 and God says, okay, I won't kill them, But I tell you this, they ain't going over into the promise. And they're going to wander in circles until every last one of them is dead. Took them 38 years. We, 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 we say it's 40, but, but we actually rounded it up. It ain't 40. It's 38 years that they wander in circles in the desert until the last one dies. And when the last one dies, God says, okay, now y'all can go on in. What's my point? My point is God gets tired. Even God gets tired of faithless folk. How many times does God have to show you who he is before you believe who he is? How many cracks did God get your rear out of? And yet you still won't trust him. How many bridges has God built for you to cross over and still you won't trust him? How many times has God made a way for you out of no way and still, you won't trust it. Jesus says, if you really want what God has for you, then throw your lot in with the one he sent. And that's me. And their response is, well, show us another sign. And we'll think about it. Feed us again. And we'll give it serious consideration. Consideration. I'm making this point because I think that a lot of us are like these people. I know what you did for me yesterday, God, but I need you to do something for me today. I'm glad you got me past that hump yesterday, but I got a new hump today, and I need you to bring me through that. And when you do that, then I'll trust you. The problem with that is that there's always going to be another problem. You never reach a place, you never reach a point in time when there is no problem. No. Never. In your 20s, you didn't have it. In your 50s, you don't have it. In your 80s, and I know I got somebody in here who's 80, you still don't have it. You, you always got one problem or another. Folk leave. They don't just walk out, they die. Folk that you trusted in die. They leave you here. Health leaves you. It's a funny thing to watch folk who think they can still do what they used to do. They try to run, and they take six steps, and they out of breath. I say all the time. When I was a kid, I ran up and down this this, this aisle all the time. If I ran to that door right now, You better make sure that there's an ambulance on the other side of that door with some oxygen. Can't do what you used to do. Time brings on a change. And yet at every stage of life, as you deal with one problem after another, as, as, as you leave this set of problems behind and you embrace this next set of problems, God is the one who brings you through. God is the one who delivers. And so why would you not throw in your lot with the one that God has sent? Point number four. Two more, and I got seven minutes. The text teaches us that some are repulsed by a savior who claims to be divine. One of the things that threw these people off is that they could not conceive of the concept of a divine savior who was in human form. They, they, They couldn't conceive it. And so they're put off by it. Simply put, they were put off by that which they couldn't understand. And a lot of us are put off by things that we don't understand. Well, to that, let me just say this. God is beyond any of our understanding. The one who knows the most about God is only scratching the surface. You think that all there is to know, and I know that we're Baptists and we're people of the book, and we like to say that everything you need to know about God is in the book. Maybe everything we need to know about God is in the book, but everything there is to know about God ain't in a book, because God can't be contained in a book. God's bigger than that. And just when you think you got him figured out, he does something else. Yes, sir. Right. 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 Yes. And he woke you up this morning. He started you on your way. He keeps health in your body. Sanity in your mind. And you going to tell me that since you got up this morning, you ain't done nothing? All right, I was just checking. I was just checking. Yes, he is all of those things. And yes, he reveals himself in all of these ways. But if you think you got God figured out, I got news for you. That'll never happen. You can never have him completely... Figure it out. And, 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 and the point is, go back to what we read in Hebrews, the point is he wants us to have faith. Faith is not what you know. Faith is believing like you know. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. So if you think you, 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 you've seen it all, and you know it all, and you've got it all, the scripture clearly tells you know you, the scripture says you don't. And yet you're urged to trust him anyhow. How did God keep them Hebrew boys from burning in the fiery furnace? I don't know. Preachers try to try try to say he threw some some kind of fire retardant cloth around him in the fiery furnace. I don't know. I don't know how he did. How how did God spare Daniel in the lions? I don't know. I do know that he did. I don't have to know how he did it to know that he did it. Y'all think y'all know everything y'all need to know about your parents. When you were a child, you took for granted that the lights were going to be on. But you don't know what your parents did to keep the lights on. You don't know how they had to stretch themselves to make sure that the bill was paid and the lights stayed on. Here's the thing. You didn't care. All you cared about is that when you walked in the house and flicked the switch, that the lights came on. Well, if you can have that kind of faith in your parents, why can't you have that kind of faith in God? You ain't got to know it. You ain't got to be able to figure it all out. All you have to do is trust it. Last point, because I'm out of time. The text points out our era of seeking a Savior who conforms to our distorted interpretation of Scripture. This goes right along with the previous point. We, we think we know God, but we don't. Many people... Refused to embrace Jesus because he did not conform to what they thought he was going to do. One quick story. The, the 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 rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now he asked the question, but he thought he already knew the answer. Because when Jesus says, Keep the law and lists all the laws, he says with glee, I've done all of that since my youth but when jesus said take everything you got sell it give the money to the poor and then come follow me boy walked away shook his head never heard from a gang go back to Nicodemus. I said one. Let me give you one more. Nicodemus says, we know that you were sent from God, but when Jesus says you must be born again, there is no place in Scripture that says that Nicodemus ever accepted Jesus Christ. He's mentioned three times in Scripture. One, he's curious. One, he's concerned when he's with his Sanhedrin brother. Let's be fair with the man. And one, he's He's compassionate because when he's dead, he comes with Joseph of Arimathea to bury him. But nowhere does the scripture say that he ever became a follower of Jesus. What's my point? We expect him to conform to our view of who he is. It just seems right. It just seems right that, that this problem shouldn't be my problem. It should be somebody else's problem. After all, I came to church on a Wednesday night when hardly anybody else was there. Why would you saddle me with this problem? It's always bad when, when, when we try to force Jesus to fit into our small model of who he is. Once again, I, I said this earlier, we miss out on so much that God has for us because we don't Embrace Jesus for who he is. That's all he wants. Embrace me for who I am. Walk with me. <laughs> when, when, when John sends his disciples, he's in jail, and, and, and John sends his disciples and says, are you the Christ or shall we look for another? Jesus says, you go back and tell John. The blind are being made to see. The deaf are being made to hear. The dead are being brought back to life. And the gospel is being preached. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, blessed are those who can accept me for who I am. We would be so much better off in life if we could get rid of what we think Jesus is and how we think Jesus ought to act and simply embrace him For who he is. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that Thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I... Repeat after me, please. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.